G'day and welcome to the Drive Able podcast where we discuss all things about driving and safer community transport for people with disabilities and medical conditions. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on the socials. Just search for Drive Able Podcast. We've heaps of content now and lots of interviews, so make sure you go back and listen to some of our older episodes. Yeah, this is a really uh, another exciting episode, Brad. I'm really excited for this one as well. Daryl Spark we have on today. He's an amputee who is very active and living life well. And he's also working with Amputees New South Wales, who's an advocacy and support group. Um, Daryl provides talks and support sort of groups around um, amputees and, and awareness around that, and has done a, long, a lot of work around supporting that community. He's in touch with a lot of people, and he's actually the person who introduced me to Kwa, who was our first interviewee. So, um, so yeah, are you ready to get this one underway, Brad? Yeah, he's a, he's a chatty fella, so let's get him on. Yeah, let's get him on. Sounds good. Driving is something many take for granted, but when someone has altered ability, then driving or getting out and about in your own car can be challenging. Driving with a disability doesn't mean you have to drive an old clapped out car with farm-like machinery, and relying on a wheelchair doesn't mean waiting for hours and then being in the back of a maxi access cab getting car sick. The Drivable podcast is designed to introduce and explore driving aids for people with disabilities, vehicle modifications, the NDIS, research, medical guidelines, driving techniques, and much, much more. The Drivable podcast is to help you be informed and be in control of your own independence so you can experience freedom through driving safely and reliably. I'm Ali, and with me is Brad, and together we have over 30 years of experience in disability and driving. Enough of the intros, let's get into it. Okay, in this episode, we're talking with Daryl Spark from Amputees New South Wales. Hey, Daryl, how's it going? Good, um, so yeah. Welcome, welcome to the uh, Drive Able podcast. And we want to kick it off by um, telling us a little about your disability or ability and um, how you came about it and a uh, little bit of background. Thanks, Ali. Yeah, no, look, it's great to be here with you guys. Um, it's always nice to catch up with with the quality gents. Um, so, yeah, no, my, I'm an amputee and I've been an amputee uh, for over 45 years now. So I was a child amputee and acquired amputation through trauma. I had a had a, a, a bit of a run in with a, a lawnmower when I was at school back in the in the mid 70s. Um, and um, let's just say the school system never was never the same again. Um, but uh, yeah, and so obviously I'm a below knee amputee. Um, my trauma was localized just to my leg, um, apart from my personality, and 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 it's um, it's been life shaping um, as as many people in the disability space experience it. I'm a working man. I work nine to five uh, in a regular kind of job. I have five kids, beautiful wife, a dog, um, um, a rabbit, which which is probably more dangerous than the dog. And, and um, when I'm not doing that, I'm a lover of sport, things like the images behind me where I'm, uh, I've got some crew together to, for a disability day to do some uh, obstacle racing. Um, and I, and this, one of my spare passions is I head up Amputees New South Wales. Oh, that's pretty cool. And um, so, well, let's, I might go back to those um, little childhood days, I guess. When, when that happened, um, you said it was in the seventies. So it happened at school and, um, like was, 
Do you recall it? Like, how old were you? Oh, look, I was five. It was actually, just to, to give you a bit of a stir, it was, um, see if this gives the juices flowing there. It was Friday the 13th, wow. February 1976. Wow. Um, not that I'm setting the tone with dark images. Um, I remember it vividly. It's one of those things etched in my mind and, and probably will stay there forever. Um, um, luckily, as a child, um, natural things take place and, and, and obviously in such a trauma and circumstance, um, basically shock kicks in and your body turns off a lot of a lot of your, your brain function except the recording processes um, it um, fairly horrific obviously um, um, I was in a little country town uh, well a village really um, at school and I was playing with a cane hoop for those who remember cane as hoops um, um, and we will um, and I just happened to step on a wet rock that the mower had been over already as I ran past the path of the mower and I didn't actually get run over I slipped underneath the mower yeah. um, and that was all she wrote now the school itself was tiny so we've only got I think at the time we had 20 kids in the school in total from from kindergarten through to year six so all in one building or one room um, and, a, and a tight-knit community so it had an impact not just on me it had an impact on the kids around me who experienced that vision um, the teacher was uh, unfortunately for him new to the job he'd only been the job probably a month or so um, and he uh, picked me up and threw me on the front seat of the Hugh Brown Kingswood, um, which was a bench seat in those days and rushed me straight to the nearest major center, which was Orange. Um, it's about 20 Ks. Um, I was very lucky. Um, if he hadn't have just dropped everything and run, um, I wouldn't be here today. Um, the, the trauma did quite a lot of damage to me um, in, in the leg space and, I'd, and I pretty much ran out of blood by the time I arrived at emergency. So um, it, it, quite a quite a challenging memory but i'm not negative about the memory um yeah. the hardest part for me was it's kind of funny i remember wanting to just let go and go to sleep and call it a day even as a five-year-old wow but the most traumatic part for me was my dad my brother jumped on the push bike and rode the the five k's back to the family farm um, got my dad and they zipped into town obviously to to the trauma and um my dad held my hand. I couldn't hear anything. It's kind of like watching a movie where they see you move your body around and that sort of stuff, first person style. And it was like that. Um, but my dad holding my hand, I, I just watched him mouth, don't leave me, don't leave me. Um, and that's always been the reason I stayed and didn't go to sleep. Um, yeah. was because that was, I couldn't, I couldn't leave my dad. So, and that sort of stuck with me yeah, all these years, but it, it highlights the importance of family and support around those with disabilities to me because it's our family that go through it with us. We're not alone in this process. They have to live the challenges. And sometimes for them, it's it's um, a, po a point of helplessness, I guess, because there's only so much they can do. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's come, out, it's come out quite a few times in this uh, podcast journey, how important family is. Um, mums get a pretty good rap. Um, on this occasion, dad's getting a... Dad's getting yep. a rap, so that's good to hear from three bald blokes uh, doing a <laughs> podcast together at the moment. Um, yeah, no, family, family do amazing things uh, in the disability side of the world and uh, support people through. Um, we've had sixteen-year-olds with mum supporting them to through the process of yep. getting their license through to yeah, hearing it over and over again. Um, yes, yeah. well, you recognise that. And I think licensing is a good one there, but you pointed out, Brad, too, because we grew up in a slightly different time. Um, 
you know, you guys might be a fraction younger than me, but, um, and better looking. But I think, um, I remember going for my license was a big deal because, um, as an amputee, you know, um, you're challenged. Can I do this? Now I'd, I'd learned to drive when I was about seven yep. um, on the family farm. So for machinery and stuff to me was, was pretty common practice. And I'd been, been hooting around the farm in a paddock basher for quite some time. But then there was still that daunting element of going in to be assessed to, to drive. And back in those days, I was lucky I was in another small town at the time. And it was the police officer uh, in a local cop shop you'd go to to do your license. And they all knew me. So I was very, very lucky once more that they knew um, they could throw pretty much anything at me and that I had an experience of adaption and capacity that they recognised, um, which meant I got quite a lot of fair treatment uh, in terms of showing what I could do. Well, let's jump, to that. let's jump to that straight away. We've got a bit of feedback in this uh, recording. I'm sorry for people listening. Um, but um, your amputation is which leg? That's my right leg. Yeah, so my throttle right side. Leg. Yeah, mm. so your throttle. And do you use the same leg for the brake as well? I do indeed. So there's an element of, of, of understanding. So in capacity terms for amputation, prosthetics technically is supposed to mitigate um, so losses. So, but that has some caveats around it. Obviously, amputation, like anything, look, as a child, any 16-year-old who goes for their license, you need to have an understanding of response and feedback and a sense of proprioception, knowing where your foot is and how much force you can apply at any time. Prosthetics can give that, but depending on your conditions, it may not be something that everybody's equally matched on. Yeah, so you've got feeling in the end of your stump? Is well, that, yeah, is that yeah I've got good, get good reception. You got mm. good reception through there, and we've spoken to uh, Kwa, who I, I <laughs> we we know that you know him. We know uh, him well. Intro- yeah. You introduced us to him uh, back in the day, but uh, we spoke to him about it as well in regards to it's not just for the OTs out there. It's not just the sense of what's in the end of the stump. Mm. You you tune into many senses when you're in a in a car. Would that be true in your oh, look, experience yeah. as well? Yeah, Brad, definitely. I mean, certainly from my experience, when I, I've got a unique experience for, with concepts of proprioception because of my uh, other curricular activities in terms of sport and, and and martial arts and that sort of stuff. And and from certainly um, the the concept for OTs out there understand is that um, the capacity element is something that needs to be demonstrated. Everybody's a little bit different, and 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 Choir in particular, his particular setup with osseo integration allows for a direct connection to his skeletal system, mm. which allows for a whole different mechanism and response. Whereas mine is perceptually through the, the epidermis or the skin of my stump and, and how that interacts with the rest of my body. But because of the way I've learned to listen to my prosthesis as it talks back, just like any shoe would, um, I get a great deal of depth of information that comes back about what I'm touching, what shape it is, how it moves, it's just responsiveness and elasticity, all that sort of stuff can come back through the prosthetic equally to, to anybody else. So since you were, since you were um, young, the, like the sort of the back in the five, six, seven, did you always have a prosthetic then? Like were you, did anything change or like, did it progress? Oh, there's been, yeah, that's a really an interesting question. Like, how do you attribute change as well to what where we're at now back in the day when i first learned to drive legs are basically made of um, um, uh, fiberglass and a range of resin materials and they still are to a degree depending on who's what leg you want um, when i first started using 
uh, prosthetic. They were made of wood, a bit of fiberglass and rubber. Um, literally, uh, my foot, my first foot, and I've got a, my first leg still. Um, my first foot was older than I was. It was actually manufactured in the UK and shipped to Australia um, 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 before I was born. <laughs> and it's really rudimentary. But you still got a sense of information, provided you had good... Um, good reception and, and nerve response in the, in your in your residual limb in your, in your stump, you could get a fair bit back. But the, the technology and materials today allow for a, a greater reception. So the amputation that you've got at the like in the first place, that has not changed. And you no, no. Uh, well, so I, we do have a component of of um, being a child amputee. One of the, it's a complete opposite adult amputation. When you're a kid, they're worried about growth. And when you're an adult, you're worried about reduction. Yeah. So um, as a child, I did have revisions. Um, it was a necessary feature of my growth. Obviously, bones don't grow at the same rate. So my typically my fib would grow faster than my tibia. And I would often often have go back in for revision of, the, of that particular bone because it was actually uh, um, pushing its way out of what remained of my body. Oh, wow. Right. So, so you're having to... revisions of your bones and not yeah. just the re- prosthetic. No, that's right. Yeah, so you go in surgery to yeah, get yeah. you lined up again. Um, otherwise, you, you grow at such a different rate that, and it happens for most people. That's why we've got growing pains as kids. You know, we, yeah. our bones are growing faster than our body can keep up with. And um, and I, it was not uncommon for me. I think my last revision was when I was about 13. Um, and, and then unfortunately, I didn't grow any taller. Um, <laughs> so, so um, and, and that's, you know, that, that in itself is a sense of trauma, but it does, have an impact too on, on how you how your body responds to reception of, of feedback. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, does that then? So, how many revisions did you have? And then did each time was did you have to kind of learn again? Like, like how was that? You, you kind of do. You kind of already got to. I mean, the good thing about being a child amputee is that you can you can adapt really quickly, and your and your neural system and your body is very uh, plastic, I guess. And and you can. You're never going back to where you started and coming forward again. You've always got an advanced knowledge position. So, um, and and I'm one of those kids who was really lucky that um, on the other side of each revision, I I recovered quite quickly, and therefore could move move forward in that expanse. I I think for me the the biggest thing that made a difference um, was just the good support. I was very lucky. I had a physiotherapist. Um, in that generation who was pretty much 40 years ahead of her time. And so um, I get the best of care in a small country town um, in a unique way. And that really set the tone for, for everything going forward. But the, the changes to your body, you just kind of got used to the fact you'd have to go in and get revisions. And, and even prosthetics, you know, um, one year I had 10 prosthetics made. Oh, wow. Because yeah, wow. the rate of growth. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Was how how do you keep up with those prosthetics? What happens with that? So you just got to keep getting them made. Basically. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's because they have such an impact on they shape but contain you at the same time. They're not they're not neutral in their behaviours. So um, and there's a coordinated uh, number we I would refer to around how it fits and how it applies itself to change you a uh, percentage. And once it drops below a particular percentage of conformance or, or fit to your residual limb. It no longer is constructive; it becomes destructive. So you've got to be on the on the cusp of change and, and constantly upgrading. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the differences with uh, 
back in that day and that era compared to NDIS era now? Did you have to pay for those? How was that all funded? 10, 10 um, divisions a, in a year. Yeah, look, it's a lot, isn't it? Um, and and back in the day, it wasn't. And now my circumstances, obviously, my trauma happened in a particularly um, poignant place. Uh, support structures um, were there because it happened at school. Um, but back in the day, um, we were looked after by Veterans Affairs because the veterans was where all the amputations were coming from. Although the rate of diabetes and vascular amputations were rapidly in increasing in Australia. So um, I, I was lucky enough to be what was created on a CIS scheme called the Free Limb Scheme. Um, and Gough Whitlam um, back in the day decided, all these people come back from Vietnam, the government decided that it was shouldn't be that people should go without prosthetics. They should, we had live in a country um, such a great country, we should be able to support each other. And prosthetics was one of those things. But technology was an unknown. We didn't know what it would cost and how much uh, was involved in the future for prosthetics um, expenditure. So it, it was it was quite a, quite an interesting thing. Thinking back now, I mean, we those who would be old enough to remember a Tirana cost about $7,000. It probably still costs about $7,000 unless you've got a really good one and you get more for it today. But prosthetics, you, know, you can consider a prosthetic like that the cost of a car. Mm. And wow. still is today. It still is today, yeah. It'd I mean, now they're they're um upwards of some of them are upwards of 70, 80, 100 grand, you know, if they're there. Oh yeah, easily. And and it's all about how that impacts. And I guess with the NDIS is a is a great tool because it adds more benefit because they're looking holistically, which is really important. And that's the nature of the, the NDIS's objective set is holistically, what does that mean? And and amputees. A prosthetic isn't the end of the story. Like if you've got a prosthetic, that's not the end of it. Um, gravity is not our friend. So um, how you walk, how you hold yourself, how you use your prosthesis can shift the lower back, impact the shoulders uh, and have an, an, a, a long-term effect on your activity. And therefore what uh, multi-mobilities you may develop as a result of that. Um, and if you're an upper limb amputee, gravity is even less your friend um, because you're imbalanced by you know, the weight of a bag of sugar on one side. And that can throw your body out um, rather quickly um, and, and make you wheelchair bound within a decade uh, oh, if, wow. if you're not paying attention to it. Never even thought about that. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's a, it can be quite debilitating um, not having symmetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Do you, do you find, talking about back and talking about, because we, we did touch on this with choir a little bit as well uh, the rotation of his hips and the rotation um of his thigh oh, look, look, just a quick shout out while we're talking about choir poor fella um yes. has fractured his uh femur i think it mm, is where yep. his osteo integration goes in and uh, he's in wheelchair for at least six weeks he's, he's making the most of it mind you he that's choir he's uh He's um, still living life to the full. I saw a video of him going down the main street, but a shout out to Kwa. He's uh, He had a fall, fractured his um, femur and is uh, having to go through quite a bit of change at the moment while we're recording this. But uh, Daryl, you know, we were speaking, getting back to driving. Do you need to compensate more with your back to be able to, and do you feel niggles in your back when you're driving? I'm Like I said, I'm, I'm really lacking a really small high percentage most people don't have the level of capacity and um, body resilience that i currently have so um uh, being in my 50s it's um i'm getting a bit longer in the tooth 
but the important uh, part for me is that symmetry allocation early in my life getting for me so i do like everybody at my age um, a long drive in the car has an impact um, and you do have to work a little bit harder with your prosthetic because it works differently to obviously there's the foot doesn't have or the ankle doesn't have um, um, dorsiflex or plantar flex it's a fixed angle um, but the pedal on the floor doesn't care um, you can be an octopus and push the pedal. Um, road rules they're a little bit harder as an octopus, but the foot on the the pedal on the floor is requires a force vector. As long as I can produce a force vector with the same sensation and control mechanisms that you would with plantar flex, then I have exactly the same opportunity to drive. Mm. So mm. for me, it's about understanding that. So I use my knee to propel or push forward to provide that vector um, more than I would. More, obviously my ankle because it doesn't move um, and choir um, has a and I've helped quite with driving choir's um, got a fixed knee position um, uh, through his microcontrolled knee which allows him to push from his hip um, which allows him again to deliver a force vector to control the pedal. Do you find when you're pressing the pedal that you press more with most drivers when when they're not using a prosthetic use the ball of their foot their toes and the and the ball of their foot do you do you know which part of your prosthetic presses the pedal i'm just to help for people that are thinking about driving with a prosthetic i'm trying to explain it for them now everybody's so it all depends a little bit with the contact point of your foot and your shoe mm. on the pedal depending on how your preferred adaption is so some people like to put their heel on the bottom on the floor on the floor of the car and push slightly forward from the knee and allowing their, the, the the toes to come forward and the base of the foot to, to meet flat. Um, some people like to hold their leg um, on the throttle via the heel and foot itself. So it sits on the throttle and you control it as if you had a point contact with your finger. So you just keep moving it backwards and forward that way. Everybody's a little bit different depending on their strengths um, and their endurance, you know, what's their stamina to do certain things. Um, ultimately, it's actually an easier exercise of walking um, because that requires a lot more activity. But people have got to find their own niche, and the, the freedom to choose so is a really important one. Do you have yeah. a bit of flexibility? Do you have a bit of flexibility in your in your ankle joint? You know where where the prosthetic is. Do you have a bit of carbon fiber or, or something like that where there's a little bit of flex in the in the ankle joint? Yeah, look, innately, um, the the foot I have now, which is very different to the foot I have when I started learning to drive, which had effectively no flexibility, um, and certainly the, the one I made out of steel for myself back in back in the eighties didn't the have farm. any flexibility either. Um, so, but the modern ones have carbon fiber, do allow for distortion because that's part of the the energy absorption return behaviors of these feet. Um, I have an act high activity foot, so it does flex a little bit and, and is well worn. So it's a bit more um, um, flexible than probably would be straight off the manufacturer's um, production line. Mm -hmm. But it does give a little bit of a little bit of give in that process. But otherwise, the ankle itself, which is innate within the curve of the carbon fiber, the ankle itself doesn't trans translate that to exactly the same. It's more like having a, a slightly different ball of the foot change rather than something like a, a whole foot right movement yeah oh thanks for explaining that because um i i've been amazed with when somebody does come with a bit of uh flexibility in that ankle joint whether it's a, a carbon type of scenario or or something else I, i'm not an expert when it comes to prosthetics at all i have to put my hand up there but um 
when they push forward into the heel, they're able to get a little bit of flex into the into the toe. So a little bit of plantar flexion, which helps them get a little bit of fine control when they're changing from, let's say, 55 kilometers an hour to 58, 57, 59 kilometers an hour. Um, yeah. They're able to control that little bit of movement. And I think that's important to remember that driving, and, and I'm, I'm working with the NTC at the moment on a range of stuff around the assessing fitness to drive and the expansion into other authority policies around the, around Australia. And and one of the things that we, to, to point out, it's important to remember that um, there's a lot more going on in driving than just our feet. You know, um, sensory-wise, we pay attention with our inner ear, with our eyes, we're listening to the sound, we're getting feedback out of the vibration of the vehicle, as well as, as the pedal itself. If it was just the pedal, it probably would be way harder for everybody to drive um, yeah. than what it is holistically. And I think that that's an important part of the feature. We're adapting on multiple fronts, even if it appears we're only adapting on one restricted place. Yeah, that's a very important um, point that we, um, we've been, I guess, a lot of the people, the drivers have been really highlighting. It's not just, you know, when you, when you lose one function, it's not that you're just trying to adapt that. Everything else is adapting um, and your whole kind of, yeah, the whole environment is adapting. So yeah. I, I've got an interest, I've got a question about, um, so are you, are you, you personally, are you on NDIS right now? I am, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I just sent an email off to, um, to my LAC um, yeah, just yeah. yesterday. Yeah. So pre, pre NDIS um, and getting all of the, cause I like, I guess NDIS requires you to have, you know, therapists and all of that kind of stuff, sign off on stuff and bits and pieces like that. So pre NDIS, you didn't need that stuff. Did you have any of those supports and therapists and things like that back then and 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 what what's what did you find the difference back then to now did you learn anything new for example or not well i mean it's, it's an interesting thing i mean um i'll probably more learn more supporting other people in with the ndis planning uh, and, and support structures um than myself but um i think it's all a bit a big big part of the learning cycle um we didn't have much to do with occupational therapy um um, at all, um, amputees and occupational therapists can can struggle a little bit um, because of the perceptions and the, and the mental health space and uh, around that particular demographic. And it's not a not a slight of occupational therapist or anybody else. It's just that we sit in a sort of funny bucket, don't we, Brad? Um, yeah, we, you, can, you can do it, Daryl. You can have a go at me. I don't mind. <laughs> go for it. I love you, Brad. You know that. Um, the I think. Um, we had more to do with prosthetists, obviously, and physiotherapists in the line of, in of our existence. Certainly, um, we often say that we're the experts in living with the amputation. That's because we are. Prosthetists don't live with it unless they're an amputee, and, and physios don't live with it unless they're an amputee, and OTs don't live with it unless they're an amputee. So, um, so we've got the most knowledge. It's just about the translation of other knowledges within the gap to, to augment what we're doing. So in the NDIS scheme of things, well, before that, um, you know, cost was a big issue. There were prohibitors, you know, access to, to product was about whether you could afford to. And, and certainly government uh, support structures in, in New South Wales are good, but, um, and federally, but it wasn't really whole, wasn't the opportunity to be holistic in its support of our needs. As I said, physiotherapy for people um, is an important thing. Gait development and training and review of gait is really important. Um, and they always contribute to whether you have um, social barriers, participation barriers. Um, you know, somebody raised an issue the other day um, about a, a wet leg. 
um, and going, you know, being able to get to the beach and that sort of stuff. And it, and this is where the children thing is a bit different to the adult thing. For an adult, a wet leg is about not falling over and breaking a hip, um, which is a hell of a lot more expensive than having a prosthetic. Um, but for a child to go to the beach with 2000 other people is immensely emotionally challenging. Um, the psychology behind being the only child, and I've been that child who has to hop down or crawl down to the beach, 2000 people will stop and see you. Yeah. Not because you're an oddity, but because it's different. And that difference has an impact on your mental health. So having support structures holistically, it's really important. Um, and, and those barriers will stop you getting on with life in, and, and being productive in, in society and contributing to your own good outcomes as well as societies. Yeah. It takes me back. I, I was a swimmer when I was uh, younger and we had a, um, Nicole was her name, um, uh, amputated at the hip at uh, almost birth. Um, and, you know, we, we treated her and pushed her in the pool when she was hopping into the pool and all kinds of mean stuff as kids do. But whenever we went to the next swimming carnival, she always attracted a crowd and, and people, you know, not knowing what to do uh, mm. to, to help her out or not to help her out or, or you know, how can, how can we make your life easier or not easier and all those type of things. So many questions whenever she went to a, uh, the next carnival. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I, I can hear what you're saying from my experience, not living with it, but my experience of, of knowing somebody, yeah, it does. It, I can imagine the um, mental challenge that that would come every time you go somewhere new. Yeah, it's quite amazing. Um, we all know that the, the, the deficits, if you're inactive, and, and if we looked at leg amp or lower limb amputation compared to upper limb, and they're not dissimilar, but they have slightly different twists on it. Um, the, the biggest cause of amputation in, in Australia is vascular diabetes uh, conditions. And, and the most important thing you need to do to overcome them is get moving. And it's really how to get moving if we take off a leg. So um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of its own, its own um, anchor in many ways. So it's, there's quite a lot of work that has to be done to break these barriers for people to get out and back because that has an impact long-term uh, on everything, including the NDIS and national funding. Um, for these structures, but most importantly, um, it's not good for people um, if they're not getting out and enjoying life like the gentleman behind me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so, maybe we should um, switch into talking a little bit about amputees New South Wales. Um, you're, you're, you're a big um, advocate for that organisation. We've watched you talk and do a few talks on it as well and done some work with you. So um, tell us a little bit about that and who they are and how you ended up there. Um, yeah, look, um, so Amputees New South Wales um, is one of the oldest um, community amputation organisations in Australia. Um, it's obviously New South Wales based, but we work like all the, all the amputee communities, we work across the country to support amputees, no matter where they are. We want, we want to help everybody. And, and that's a natural, a natural thing. As an organisation, we're a member organisation, so we're invested in all the people in, in New South Wales. And, and it's important to recognise that there's 2000 amputations in New South Wales every year. Now, that's quite a lot. And there's 8,000 across Australia. So that's one pretty much every hour if you just take an average. So there's a lot of people that need help. But we're an old school organisation in the sense that we're really grassroots. Individuals need help um, as much as anybody else in large groups. So we're focused on supporting them through peer engagement because often 
if you're coming into the system as an amputee, it's a very daunting and scary thing. And you need people ahead of you in the chain to help you. But we also advocate within agencies and, um, and services like the NDIS for the right kind of outcomes. We kind of hold all that intrinsic knowledge about living with amputation because um, there's only one way to discover this stuff is to be thrown in the middle of it. Um, and it's very hard to do on your own. So being there to support agencies and, and, and allied health teams understand the complexities of it, it benefits the whole community. So as, a, as an organisation, we, we feel very responsible towards supporting that. But we also like breaking those barriers of social inclusion down. So we get out and we do stuff um, like that, that stuff behind me. Um, out to archery, I've got uh, um, some horse riding come up, some mountain biking, some e-biking. We're looking at technologies. We we love bringing our allied health team with us as well because so they can see us in action and learn some new stuff. Um, we're working on, on some programs, um, uh, as you and I both know, Ali, about driving further and education in that space, um, both for return to, return to driving people and those who might be driving for the first time. So we're real about community building. That, that's the organisation's heart. What kind of programs? Tell us a bit more about those programs. So one of the things we recognise that it's really difficult um, to, to learn how to use proprioception if you're a new amputee, certainly in the lower limb space. So there aren't any safe structures really that people feel um, available to them. So we're looking at how we can create new programs um, and, and Transport New South Wales is really supportive of, of us doing this as established new programs so people can learn how to drive in a safe environment, obviously off the road. Um, so they can pick up the skills, develop proprioception and feel that they're included uh, and, and allow the opportunity to, to um, demonstrate the capacity when they actually return to driving licensed officially. Now that's not just going to be obviously the return to drivers. There's also a whole fleet of, of youngsters coming through in the town of years wanting to learn to drive. And there's also the misconceptions around what that means and how it works for them. So giving them the opportunity to develop skills uh, like I did on the farm, um, we can't obviously stick a farm in the middle of uh, a ride downtown Sydney, but um, as much as I like it, but there are opportunities that we can create so they can learn these skills in a fun and in supportive way, but at the same time, bringing in New South Wales transport, bringing in um, OTs like Brad and, and so forth to get in there and, and help those kids and help those individuals as well as learn about the process and capacity as well. Because that's the big thing for us. There's a bit of a gap between some of these knowledge points. What's the licensing like um, for amputees? Like, what's your experiencing around that in terms of restrictions and what's, and, on, what's on your yeah. license, Daryl? What, um, have you got a restriction on your license? Look, um, it's a very interesting point. When I started driving, I've I my amputation technically I would say is not a disability. It's my superpower. Mm. So um, um, I, for the first five years, didn't put down I had a disability when I started driving because I didn't. Um, you had to keep pace with me. Um, that's just how the universe worked. Now, it wasn't until later I thought, oh, maybe there's, maybe there's a requirement for me to do this. So I put it on. So the only license uh, uh, condition I have is must wear artificial leg. Mm. Yep. Now, because um, it's a bit hard to drive without it, obviously. <laughs> so um, my, I always find it funny because it doesn't say where I have to wear it, just no. that I have to wear it. So <laughs> I can, put, it on, put it on your head. Put it on my head if I want. But, um, of course, no. I don't, but um, yeah, it has made for an interesting bard joke when I've been asked to, you know, back in the days of showing my license and they said, so show us your leg. And I've asked them to fill it up. But um, <laughs> the, I guess um, that can vary for a lot of reasons for a lot of people. 
and you know a lot of conditions some people for example who might have a, um, a low sensory response in their stump uh, through because of vascular disease may choose to go down the path of an adaption in their vehicle and go to a left foot accelerator in which case they're going to only drive automatic um, because it's a bit hard to drive manual in that circumstance and people with an upper limb difference may have requirements to drive um, automatic in the same way but for a slightly different reason because obviously if they've got um, a transhumeral or above elbow amputation when no prosthetic to mitigate that that feature then they probably can't change gears on too readily so an automatic is an appropriate thing so conditions are are appropriate but it'll surprise you when you discover what people can do comfortably yeah and given the opportunity to do so um with, without any any barriers is really important yeah um i, I think that's that, that's one of the things i learned really quickly um certainly working with our youth programs absolutely and any ot um listening to this i i challenge you to let them let them have a go um and and you can be amazed Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a big theme of what we always say on this show, you know, get out there and try different things. So it's, um, and, and don't limit yourself and um, you'll be surprised what you can and can't do, you know, so, and, and actually one thing I noticed you say, which I, um, it reminded me actually of an experience I had, which was similar to the picture behind you. So you said something about left foot accelerator and um, I'd like to hear your opinion about this. So I was doing a Spartan race myself, like four or five years ago. And there was an amputee guy doing it. And I basically started running with him for about, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour, and we were chatting. And then I told him how I work in this space and I, you know, work in controls and, and um, you know, disability driving um, products. And we were chatting. And then he was basically, um, it was really interesting because he was having a big whinge about how he, he said when he became ampu- an amputee, everybody told him, you know, you just got to go get a left foot accelerator. That's what you should get, you know. And then he ended up getting one and he hated it. And then he said he um, he drove a car with hand controls and he was like, I wish someone told me I could use hand controls because it's way easier for me, you know? And he's like, I've always been struggling with these bloody left foot accelerator, but they just go, oh, well, you're an amputee, go get a left foot accelerator. So so what do you think look, about that? It's, look, and it's one of the things I've raised with the NTC just recently. It's, it's and it's not, a, it's, like I said, it's, my, my rule of thumb is the biggest problem in the community for amputation and limb difference about the concepts of capacity and driving relate to the lack of information. And it's not a lack of information because people aren't genuine. It's a lack of information because the community historically had a behaviour of being very quiet uh, and withdrawn because it has a huge mental impact. I mean, a lot of people suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder because of the amputation surgery, not whatever condition was that caused it so people retreat a little bit and it's confronting so when it comes to knowledge we as a community nationally haven't done a good job at sharing that information uh, proactively so we i mean certainly from my perspective as, as a community leader we're going back into universities educating different allied disciplines about capacity and what what we do and how that works but the the, the so there's a bias ali i guess to follow suit previously taken if you're missing a left leg, get in a you know right leg, get a left foot accelerator. If you if you if you're an above knee, you can't drive. You've got to do that. Um, and and the crux of this problem is that you've got to let people demonstrate capacity or ability, or give them the tools to develop it. Yeah. Um, I I I I've seen lots of people 
very disgruntled because they were told they had to have a left foot accelerator and not given the opportunity. Um, driving is, driving authorities say to us, hey, driving is a responsibility and it's a privilege, but we live in a society where it's not. We live in a society where it's a right and it's a right of passage. So um, you only have to look back at the, the, you know, the 60s and 70s and earlier to see that driving was a rite of passage for young people, getting your license. So when it's stripped away and you're told you have to change your behaviour without evidence, and that is majority of time without evidence, um, then it creates a problem. The problem would be that most people get back into driving so early in their experience cycle as amputees, like right after getting out of hospital, that they haven't yet developed the skills. Yeah. So they get into uh, left foot accelerators and a whole range of other stuff and then discover later that they could do with the right foot. And then they feel, well, a little bit angry towards occupational therapists because they were directed by an OT to do that. But not just them, you know, even the driving authority service counter guys go, oh, you'll need this or you can't have that because, but it's not really how it works. And when you start to talk to the upper echelon of, the, of authorities like Transport New South Wales, you discover there's just a little bit of lack of information. So for me personally, as an individual with good experience and, and most of the time, I've had a few funny ones, I'm, in, I'm invested in injecting that knowledge back in the system so we can dispel the rumours. There are plenty of people that are still going to need left foot accelerators um, and, and hand controls. And, and that's what I love about you guys with mobility engineering is be able to get in there and try stuff, you know, have a look and see all the conference work that you guys do. And Brad, you're great at getting people to try and look at different things. That's the opportunity people need to discover what will suit them best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So, Thank you very much, Daryl. For, for from your side, not not our side. Um, yeah, we we keep spruiking it every week. Um, we we do this podcast to get out there and try stuff. Uh, it's our it's our tagline at the end of this podcast. You'll hear it again a little bit later. But thank you for saying it from your point of view as well. And look, um, I'm just gonna maybe push a few buttons with a few OTs when I say this. Um, but the traditional OT assessments based on one hour of experiment, and mm. then we we give a we give um, our advice based on that. Yeah. It, it takes more than an hour uh, to learn something but then you might get to the end of an hour and then go well maybe let's try something else and and giving that opportunity to try more than just one option and and look there is an onus on OTs to meet a standard with the national transport commission and their local state authorities um there are some misconceptions about liability with regarding that because i've had those strong conversations with with the authorities um and it's worth having conversations uh, with your local community with amputation and limb difference like and even calling Ali and Brad, who've got great experience for everybody listening out there, or, or make contact with me to understand more. There's such a wealth of information um, available through lived experience um, that can really help you help your clients so much more um, and understand their needs. Because at the end of the day, they're going to look back and go, what did my OT give me? What did they help me with? How did they treat me? Um, and, and how you are open to them and, and share with that opportunity to learn is it's going to have an imprint on them going forward for the rest of their days. Yeah, that's interesting. So how, how did you end up with amputees in New South Wales? How, how did that end up happening? Oh, look, um, I um, I got involved in, um, I've always been involved in sport. So sports always my big big thing and, and obviously prosthetics and, and reaching the pinnacle, I guess, in, in martial arts um, as an amputee, certainly in the world um, for, for my condition. 
uh, meant that I sort of kind of got a little bit of limelight somewhere along the line and end up doing an ambassadorship with, the, with one of the manufacturers. And in the process, I started to see more and more people because they are relatively hidden in society. They don't come out unless you are looking for them. And, uh, and I discovered that I was kind of alone. Like there wasn't, there's great athletes in Australia with the amputation, wonderful people I call my great friends today, but there's more people struggling dramatically um, with their condition who needed help. And I went, wow, this is, this is horrendous. I, I, I'm an opportunity to do something. I need to do something. So I looked around at organizations to see what I could do uh, and how that might work. And I, I came across the, the amputee association amputees New South Wales in one of its branches um, and I discovered while they were kind of um, um, old school they had the most amazing capacity to just get in and decide to help people and make a difference there weren't the barriers that I saw in modern foundations there's just a genuine sense of you know what if we have to do that then we go and do that and help that person because that one person is worth everything you know their day their life their experience it is so important um and by doing that you build community at the same time and i got invested because of that with that passion is something i have and it, i could see it there in the organization and, and an opportunity to to do so much more than, than has been done in, in some time and and how does it work with the organization uh, one how many people are like i guess volunteering or working is it something that like you are a member of? Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, so it's a member organisation. I'm a bit more liberal, I guess, in, in many ways, in, in sense of how it works. Um, historically, you would have thought of the community as pretty much just amputees, but we recognise everybody in the community as part of our community. We're not indivisible in any way or exclusive. Um, we encourage health professionals and, and families to get involved and we run activities so families can be participate. In that image behind me, um, um, where's Wally is a dad of, of an amputee climbing up that, that wall there. Um, um, someone further up just is as an amputee and the two other people there are a prosthetist climbing the wall. Um, as well, and and some amputees about to climb the wall below them. So we get people involved in the community. So uh, anybody can be involved, a volunteer organisation. So predominantly everybody is, is is coming on board to do their part, to help each other. Um, and it's a, a statewide. Um, and if you're going to other states like Queensland, there's a Queensland equivalent to us in Victoria and, and Canberra and so on. So um, the, the premise for us is that um, community builds and supports community and that's how we operate um, so for me it's, a, it's it's an obvious thing get in and have a go you know a little bit might be sausage sizzle or it could be a peer support volunteer helping someone who's distressed um, with the new changes in their life yeah sounds like a good organization Daryl we haven't even spoken about uh, the martial arts side of it all do you want to do you want to just give a, a really quick uh, history into because you've mentioned it a couple of times? I want to give you time to explain that because um, I, I want to know a little bit more about that side of or that part of your life. Um, well, um, I, I guess um, as a high school kid growing up, ninjas were the popular fashion, um, and everybody wanted to be a ninja um, or a turtle, maybe a turtle ninja at the same time. Um, and when I hit university, I was invited by one of my friends because I was also a tennis player and, and a hockey player and that sort of stuff and said, um, look, I want to go to this thing called Taekwondo. Um, and I went, I want to be a ninja. Why would you want to do Taekwondo? 
but okay, I'll come along and hold your hand. So I went along, um, fell in love with the sport instantly the very first night. Um, eight months later, I was the president of the university club at Newcastle, stayed the president for seven years, became the, the instructor of the club um, four, years, four years after I started uh, and still a head coach um, of the club ever since. I work on the um, Australian Para Committee for Taekwondo Australia um, and I'm a fourth then master instructor for Taekwondo. And, and um, along the way, I learned a lot, like understanding how to really use my prosthetics um, effectively, understanding body mechanics, my, my knowledge has grown dramatically, balance, posture, um, um, the physics of it all. And often I find myself in my classes educating allied health teams of undergraduates, training with me to learn about um, not just about prosthetics, but learn about body mechanics and and, and behaviour. Um, so I, I kind of reached the point where I, I actually got to the point where I could have like, well, let's go to the Olympics, except there's no class for me because it's unique in the world. Mm. So um, I kind of reached the top a bit early <laughs> before I could build anything, but I love it. And I still train uh, with 20-year-olds today and, and they've still got to keep up with me. It's That's good. You run as well, don't you? Is that right? Yeah. I do. I do. I've, I've actually torn my hamstring on my, my good leg um, at the moment, so I'm letting it recover. Um, I enjoy a good run. I've, I've done a few half marathons and that sort of stuff, and I, I look forward to getting out and do more events because running back in the old days came at a price when the technology was different and the suspension types were different. We didn't have um, silicon-based um, liners like we do today. And, and a run, I remember when I was um, 14, I ran... Um, uh, high school um, cross country um, and it was run on a woolen sock and when I got to the end of the cross country I took my leg off um, because it just hurt too much and I poured the blood out of my socket yeah. and and I didn't walk for three weeks wow. um, and that was the price you paid in the day to just get in and have a go um, and sometimes that happens still not so much the pouring the blood out of the bottom of the socket but um, you still have injuries and stuff and so prosthetics are really vital and the quality of prosthetics has an impact but uh, running is a lot of fun. I love doing sports, obviously. Um, for me, it's a great uh, motivator and it's a kind of my medicine. Mm. That's really cool. Hey, you're a great guy to talk to, Daryl. We've we've probably got to, uh, we could probably talk for another hour or so about uh, Taekwondo, about running, about, but this is a driving podcast. Um, yep. So thank you very much for sharing it. We, we, we have this one question that we finish everything off. I think we've primed you for it. Um, what's the final question that we ask everybody is that driving is more than getting from a to b um what's something that you use your car for or have used your car for in the past that means so much to you that other people mightn't know about well it's really hard i'm a country boy obviously so there's probably a lot of things i shouldn't mention i've used my car for um um and it's hard to think of something in particular. I mean, I've, I've, I grew up in, in a car called a Hillman Hunter and only those old enough to know that the Hillman Hunter was a, was a, a strong, solid car of its era. And it had the best chromium bumpers in the business. Um, and I remember, um, but, but it had the softest steering arms of iron you could get and you could bend it with a finger. Um, and I remember um, felling a tree once um, by accident coming down a hill because I bent the steering arms, the wheels went out and I hit a tree. The chromium bumper didn't even flinch, but the tree fell down and it was a tree. <laughs> so, um, but I think one of the things the most interesting, I got my first car, um, still being a country boy, we used to obviously go spotlighting and, 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 and shooting foxes and that sort of stuff. And I remember taking my car um, basically through a swamp 
and and um, with a mate spotlighting in a, in a, in a friend's uh, property. And, and literally um, we sat on the windowsills and we drove, and I actually have a prosthetic on the floor, pushing it with my normal foot um, <laughs> from the socket while I sat on the windowsill with a spotlight driving across, the, across this swampy paddock while my mate was shooting out the other window. Um, and, and I thought to myself, there is no way anybody else would be doing this ridiculous thing in this car. Um, but the car did it and, and we had a fantastic time and, and, and I relish every moment of, of that insanity. Uh, good on you, Daryl. Thank you very much. Um, that was awesome. Yeah, a huge thank you to you. Hey, um, if people wanted to reach out to you or Amputees New South Wales, how, could, how can they do that? Where's the best place to find you? We'll share some details as well in this podcast in the show notes, but where's the best uh, place for people to reach you for, if they're just listening in? Oh, look, the best place is to jump on, um, obviously, through the website, uh, amputeesnewsouthwales.org.au. Uh, we have an 1800 number um, to make contact, and you can also find us on Facebook. That's that's perhaps the easiest way. Um, I'm a hands-on kind of guy, so at the top of the chain, if people make a call or send an email, you're going to get the, the, t- the top of the tree uh, and get involved. So that's really the simplest way. Drop a line, give us a call. Any question, any thoughts, any support, we're, we're here. Just, just, just reach out. Yeah, yeah, mate. I'll give these guys a plug. I'll give Daryl a plug up. We've worked with him and he's um, they're very helpful and they're really passionate. So honestly, if even if, as he said, even if you're an allied health professional or anyone needing some help or questions, call and ask because um, they're more than willing to help. And I think it'll be of benefit anyway. So yeah, if you're a driver trained OT, reach out um, and ask questions. Don't don't <laughs> just don't don't guess. Ask questions and uh, learn more about this space because yeah, like Daryl said, you don't just need a left foot accelerator. If you've had a right amputation, there's lots of options out there. Um, and when it comes to upper limbs, lower limbs, left, right, multiple, there's there's options out there to experiment with. And, and somebody with lived experience like Daryl, uh, we thank you very much for sharing your journey and um, yeah, being open to discuss things with, with driver trained OTs, but anybody with an amputation or anybody okay. else that needs more information. Yeah, no, look, and thank you guys. I don't know, to everybody listening, um, there's there's no question that you're talking to the two of the best experts in the business um, with, with Ali and Brad. And, and I appreciate you guys giving me the chance to have a chat. And it's 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 good to see uh, so many shiny foreheads. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Tune in, tune into the YouTube channel if you want to see yeah. some uh, glare. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, look, for people listening in, um, hang around. We're going to, uh, Ali and I, break down this interview into some important pieces of information for people uh, specific about driving. But uh, if you can't hang around, as we say in every episode, if you've got any queries about what you can do and what will work for you, get in contact with your local OT or mobility dealer and set yourself up with a trial. I think we've highlighted that enough today. Trials really do put you in the driver's seat. See you in the next episode, everyone. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, guys. Okay, so um, that was a great interview there, Brad. So now we're going to do the um, the follow up, just I guess the little breakdown. Um, and to kick it off, I might just highlight one of the points I've got here, which was the first point, um, which it was really great to hear um, uh, Daryl highlight the whole point of um, family and supports and people around you. You know, it was great that he sort of raised that point straight off the bat. Yeah, amazing how 
families get involved and and like we said in the actual interview families are a crucial part especially uh, I imagine for a 16 year old um, living with a disability and, and helping them to get their license in the first place uh, you know parents are, are vital in that um, sequence of events for, for most drivers at 16 year old but I can imagine that there's a lot more support required or maybe maybe not I don't know I'm, I don't live with a disability uh, per se like that so yeah it's interesting to hear him talk about it yeah yeah it was really good and the thing I mean I actually learned a fair bit there as well I thought it was really interesting um, the all the different like I guess the 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 how many prosthetics you need to keep getting as you're growing and um and like that's going to be probably pretty challenging if you're on NDIS um, and also maybe, you know, even challenging for an OT, even to sort of predict growth rates and things like that. Well, like, what do you think about that? I think it comes a bit more back down to the uh, prosthetics team uh, for that type of thing. The OT's role would be more around uh, helping the youth to get out and do the activities that they want to do um, and trying to, as we heard from Daryl, we, we don't want OTs limiting um, people by saying you can't do this and you can't do that. But it's more about um, understanding the risk and presenting the risk and then allowing them to take a calculated risk um, and being aware that you've got to live life. We all take we all take risks. Um, yeah. We all we all, you know, go down to where I am, down to Glenelg and you see all the kids jumping off the jetty. Um, or the pier if you're in New South Wales, but uh, jumping off into the water, doing backflips and stuff, that's a calculated risk. You know, yeah. sometimes people don't do a calculated risk. They just are thrill seekers and, and they want to uh, put themselves uh, in a dangerous situation to get adrenaline rush. And yeah. we don't want to take that away from, from people with disabilities as well. It's a really important... Uh, part of of people's lives to be able to make that choice to be able to get that adrenaline rush to be able to do things that are exciting and and not limiting and um, we want to be able to open up the world not restrict the world as OTs yeah yeah I think those a lot of the stuff that we he spoke about particularly with all the different um, I mean honestly I think it's one where if you're a therapist particularly working with um amputees you probably could benefit from listening to this episode a couple of times because the way he was explaining a lot of that stuff that it was pretty technical and I thought it was really good like as in um all the stuff around the, the sensory experience the feedback I mean because I like I guess if I'm thinking it would actually be very challenging um for a therapist to to be dealing with the amputee because like I guess I learned a lot here in this one. In my mind, I, I didn't even think about all of those aspects. I was just thinking, yeah, prosthetic, this is probably one of the easier disabilities to deal with, but it seems like it's actually probably one of the more complex ones. Well, like he said, you know, the, the mental mindset is uh, the right leg doesn't work in, in quoted, um, inverted commas. The right leg doesn't work, so let's chuck it onto a left foot accelerator. And that's been the historical viewpoint. And it was so good to have him explain that you know, there's so much more to it than that. Um, you know, there's there's possibilities for the right leg to be utilised in driving and being able to learn how to use that right limb can be all that's required. 
rather than trying to learn how to use your left leg or trying to learn a set of hand controls. It might be that we enhance the skills that you've already got in your right leg to be able to compensate for the prosthetic on the pedals. And like he said, all we need is a force on the pedals and we need to be able to apply well, we're getting into physics now. My uh, my son's doing his physics exam today. Uh, we're getting into, and I've been queuing, uh, testing him out on it all uh, in regards to forces of equal uh, to, to make things move and stuff like that. But that's all that's required on the pedal. We need a force on the pedal and we need to be able to move the foot or the prosthetic from brake to accelerator quickly enough and be able to apply enough force and then appropriate force. And yeah. If, if the person can demonstrate a possibility in that area, then maybe we can enhance it to be able to make it safe. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was really good that he highlighted because it's something that it's come up a little bit in some of the last interviews is, um, is that you, you're using, well, I liked how he pointed out, I guess I didn't even think about it myself, was even, even an able-bodied driver is using multiple sensories, you know, he's using everything, not just their feet, right? So, um. So and and yeah, I mean that's that's really got to be understood when you're when you're assessing somebody or, or working with them. It's not just looking at that. Okay, well here's this one thing missing, or here's this one thing that doesn't work, and let's um let's just focus on that. It's it's the entire um, body that's functioning, the entire sensory experience. So it's um yeah, it was really it was really good that he kind of um really pointed that out. So uh, I think it's a really what he really highlight, highlighted is that it's it's not that it doesn't work. It's just that it works in a different way. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. and and we're using other sensors and other feedback mechanisms to be able to make it work in a different way. And and he's highlighting that with his stories of uh, going through swamps and spotlighting and yeah, uh, yeah. And, and things like that. It's uh, it's it's those stories of why we ask that question because um, we we want to explore how people are using their license to to live life and yeah. to get out and enjoy what Australia has to offer. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll have an international guest at some point, I'm sure, <laughs> and we'll talk about what it's like to, to drive overseas, but uh, there's lots to explore around Australia with their license, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and also um, I, thought it was, I thought it was interesting um, what we were talking about uh, with respect to the, 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 the pre- well, I guess the last couple of interviewees we've had um, seem to have come from these pre-NDIS days. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is the old school seems to be a little bit more, I don't know if resilient is the right word or, or like it's just more like they just had to do it. So they seem to have figured out a way, whereas now there seems to be like, like for example, this licensing question that we've been discussing and, and so on, it's, starting to get pretty sensitive whereas as he said he didn't even have anything on his license and this is a common <laughs> story right that's right so it's yeah. um it's it's kind of i don't know i'm a bit uh we, we've got to keep uh, our tabs on and i am a bit concerned that we might become a bit too soft um you know because the old school way they just had to figure it out and they did you know so it's um it's interesting yeah i i totally agree um you know uh, there was a little tiny point there where he said he made his own leg um, I wanted to ask more questions about that, but he made his own metal leg. Um, and I imagine him, you know, 
sitting there uh, on his farm welding something together to be able to, to he's got some imagination in his mind of what he's going to do with this leg i just wanted to be in his head and figure out what he's going to use this metal leg that he's creating for himself um at that time of his life but yeah i, th I think that's it i think well it's with society now as well isn't it we're all using phones where previously people were in sheds making stuff it's it's maybe something to do with society nowadays as well yeah 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 so i mean it's not a bad or a good thing it's just interesting that yeah, back in the days, because I, I even saw somebody recently, um, he, I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily that great in terms of safety, but um, he had basically fabricated his, uh, he had a Mercedes van and he had fabricated all these really interesting um, hand controls and, and things that open doors and, and all these little things. He just made them all like with his mate in a workshop and um, the hand controls were very, um, very very questionable <laughs> but but the thing is is that he and i was sort of um pushing him on it but he turned around and said look i reckon i because i've been doing this thing for the last you know 20 years i reckon i'm probably safer than most people with if you get or i'd be safer if you gave me a standard hand control you know because i've been doing this this way so that sort of long-term adaptation is um it's a very important aspect as well and, and giving people that time under that controlled environment which is also something that um was mentioned there that they do offer you know people to be able to drive in those controlled environments where it's not on the road and so on to get that experience i think that's yeah really important in in trying to experience everything yeah i oh, absolutely i congratulations to uh, amputees new south wales where they're they're putting on what appears to be a track day or go-karting or, or something along those lines where people can get out and experiment uh we, we say it every week get out there and trial so Look, if you're if you're wanting to experiment driving, um, get in contact with with Daryl, um, and and hopefully you can get out and have a have a trial with him with the program that they're organising uh, for people to to give it a go. And I think yeah. that's what we've highlighted so much in this is in a controlled environment, give it a go. Um, and I think I made mention of it in the podcast, but uh, OTs allow you can learn so much from your clients and they do really do have the lived experience like daryl was saying um make sure that you you give them the chance to to have a go even if it's to have a go to rule it out at least then you know don't yeah. don't try to rule it out without actually having a go um because you, you you as the ot might learn something but also the client might learn something as well and they might you made point of it, uh, Ali, that this other gentleman that you know just felt way more at home with hand controls than with the left foot accelerator. Yeah. And um, and people's brains adapt differently. People can use their right side of their brain better than their left side of the brain or um, be able to control their upper limbs with more feeling and with more confidence than their lower limbs. And also in the long term, um, you might find like, for example, we spoke, as we mentioned in this episode, um, with Qua, how he uses his hips and moves his hips. Mm. Maybe in the long term, that might cause more damage on the hips as compared to, let's say, if he was using, you know, like a push pat or something, you know, something where it's a pretty easy thing to use on a hand control, um, you know, like an electronic hand control or something like that, or one of those, you know, glove ones or, or whatever, like, what, like a fairly easy to use one um, in the long term may actually be better for his body as well. So that's an interesting, I guess, thing to... Think about. Maybe better for his body, Ellie, but 
knowing Qua mentally, it's not it's not gonna yeah yeah well him yeah pain. yeah he he wants to well when the borders uh, open back up again he'll be in America driving some massive you know uh, V eight car or racing it around a track or whatever he's he for him mentally uh his he needs to be able to drive any car that he can get himself into and, yeah. and being limited by hand controls in one car that might be for later on in life not, yeah, yeah not where and actually that's actually a really good point when you said the mentally thing because that was also the thing that um daryl kind of pointed out as well how it is it was great that he kind of pointed out that mental health aspect of it as well because that is such a big aspect of anyone with any disability really like um like i've i've mentioned it recently it was a few months ago now i um i broke my foot and um and i was in a wheelchair for a couple of days or a few days when i went out in public and and yeah really you are like the eyes are all glued to you like i was like just in a wheelchair you know what i mean just being pushed around by my wife and it wasn't even anything i didn't think it was anything spectacular but but i was getting stares left right and center people were uncomfortable and, it was, and i was just like wow this is pretty confronting you know it was really interesting yeah, how how is that comment that he made about the PTSD that's associated with the surgery, not the accident? Yeah, yeah, that the, the PTSD, that mental mind shift that this is it, the limb the limb's about to come off, or it has come off, uh, and the PTSD related to the surgery, not actually slipping underneath a tractor, uh, yeah. you know, a lawnmower. Uh, yeah, unreal, really. Uh, how how the body adapts to the point of confrontation yeah and and i guess the one thing which um which we've had a few guests on as well which show like you can see with daryl he's um he's doing quite well in life and i and i think a lot of it would be um contributed to all the sports that he does you know that's that's a um you know you're part of a community you know you're you're it's an instant it's like what um was it Liesl was talking about you know mm -hmm. um walking into there and just basically seeing everyone there you're it's an instant community you know so um people are doing things people have got boyfriends girlfriends all that kind of stuff so it's um it's a big encouragement to be more engaged into that active kind of life you know and um and and being yeah living that life the best way you can don't just trial driving trial everything and yeah yeah try everything, everything so you can get out there and um and experience those things you know i don't think daryl will be going um to martial arts classes and things like that as often if he didn't have the ability to drive you know so um that's the whole point he get out there drive and, and use the community so it's really good yeah absolutely if you want like we've uh highlighted we will put how to get in contact with daryl through amputees new south wales in our show notes so you can find that on uh, the drive able podcast facebook page we're also on instagram and we're also on youtube if you want to come and watch this episode and actually see uh daryl's face and he uh, referenced the picture behind his head there where he was doing an obstacle uh race like spartan or tough mudder or or whichever one it was at that point um he he's a super active guy he's amputees new south wales do a lot um to support people um not just in new south wales but across the country as well um there's other associations out there as well limbs limbs for life and other local uh support groups as well so reaching out to these support groups allows you to see what other people are doing see how they're living their life through lived experience and, and that might be the bit that that helps you um overcome adversity but uh yeah if you want to try driving uh, get out there and try that as well 
Yeah, yeah. That's it, I guess. We should uh, wrap it up there. Yeah. And, um, we'll come back for another one, eh? Yeah. Well, see you in the next one. Uh, the next one's exciting too. I'm looking forward to that one. That, uh, yeah, yeah. That'll be very, very interesting chat. I'm not going to give anything away, but uh, yeah, taking a different viewpoint in the next chat will be very interesting. Yeah, sounds good. We've got lots of good interviews coming up. So uh, yeah, it's going to be All good. Right. All right, Brad, we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Drive Able podcast with Brad Williams and Ali Akbarian. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.